Welcome to the Heart of Dating Podcast. Hey, it's Kate. I'm so glad you could join us this week as we try to untangle the ever so ambiguous world of dating as a Christian. Over here on Heart of Dating, we get real as we answer some tough questions and uncover transformative ways to approach Christian dating. Oh, and you better believe we have some laughs along the way, because last time I checked, the struggle is hashtag real. You know what I'm saying? Now, let's get to the heart of the matter. Hello, hello, my lovely Heart of Dating family. It's your host, Kate Warman here, and I am so thankful you are tuning in right at the best time, you guys. We are at the start of season seven, and currently we are doing a dive into the nuanced and complex conversation of the LGBTQ plus community and the church. I honestly am blown away. I am just so thankful for the responses so far to the series. In fact, in the first week of launching season seven, we have had about 50,000 of you guys tuning in. 50,000 people tuning in. I'm in awe. I can't believe it. That is truly just incredible and blowing my mind right now. Unfortunately, the topic of LGBTQ plus and the church can sadly be so dividing. And in many ways, it's today become really politicized. So my ask of you as you continue to listen to this series and as we continue to dive deeper into the subject is this. Let's lead with the radical love and compassion of Jesus. Why? Well, because when you lead with morals and with ethics, it can turn into moralistic judgment. And this will in turn lead you to think or act as though you are morally above others. And in turn, that then causes pride and judgment. I humbly implore you to listen patiently to this series with an open heart. Listen before you reach out to us here at Heart of Dating. Listen before you make any judgments or assumptions. Listen and truly hear the stories that are to be shared in this series. Believe me, there have been both a lot of practical and theological questions I have personally researched and had to wrestle with over the last several years. But I want you to know and rest assured that this series has been done with immense prayer and thoughtfulness. Each guest was hand-selected and prayed over. Our team has also sought mentorship from numerous other Christian leaders. We have researched and studied and prayed to no end to really bring you what we believe is a beautiful, eye-opening, and God-filled series on faith, gender, and sexuality. It's so important that you listen with an open mind and heart and that you actually hear the words of the guests. These stories are the reality for so many people. And if you are a straight individual listening to this, please know that oftentimes our LGBTQ plus brothers and sisters don't feel the weight of our compassion or our hearts to understand them or our hearts to come alongside of them. Instead, they just hear our hearts to change them, shun them, or disagree with them. And that's so, so sad and disheartening to me. So with that, I really want to transition into the conversation today with the absolutely wonderful Greg Coles. Now, even the title of this episode may throw some of you guys off because there is a linguistic debate concerning those who are Christian and living with a traditionally Christian view of marriage. There's the debate on whether or not someone who is a Christian and has attraction to the same gender should say they are gay or whether they should say that they are same-sex attracted. Before you lead in your opinions and even potential judgments that might be bubbling up right now, 
I implore you and encourage you to please listen to Greg's interview today. He is so wonderful, and he is joyous and rich in his love for God. His story is beautiful, so would you hear him out? Also, I want you to know that later this season, we'll also be speaking with the amazing Sam Albury, who refers to himself as same-sex attracted versus gay. And in that interview, he shares his personal thoughts on why he chooses to do that. So without further ado, let's talk about Greg. Greg is the author of Single Gay Christian, a personal journey of faith and sexual identity, and No Longer Strangers, finding belonging in a world of alienation. He holds a PhD in English from Penn State and lives in central Pennsylvania, where he works as a writer, speaker, and worship leader. Greg is a frequent contributor with organizations like Revoice and the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender, and curates most of his creative activities at gregorycoles.com. I would highly, highly encourage you to go out and get Greg's book, Single Gay Christian. I love reading his story. I love his joyful demeanor and his uncanny vulnerability. And as you listen to this conversation today, I think you're going to see exactly what I mean. Just as he talks, there is just so much joyfulness in the air. So let's get into it. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Greg Coles. All right, here we are today with Greg Coles. Welcome to Heart of Dating. Hey, thanks for having me. <laughs> I'm so excited to have you here. We finally made it, Greg. We had tech issues with our, our last recording, and you were just so gracious to reschedule with me. So I'm just going to publicly say thank you because you guys need to know, Greg is a really gracious, awesome human being. He even offered to like help me tech-wise figure out my problems, and I was like, that's so sweet of you. So, Greg, thank you. Hey, it was my pleasure. It, it, your listeners should all know, guys, I'm actually no good at tech things. So when I offered to help with the tech, it wasn't much of an offer. You know <laughs> You know what? You actually did help, though. I was like, for not knowing, he did help. He helped steward things in my head that I wasn't thinking of. So I love it. Um, Greg, for people who don't know who you are, they're going to find out a bunch about your story today. But before we get into that epic story, would you just share who you are, what you call, what you do, and and things like that with our listeners? Yeah, I am a guy who lives in central Pennsylvania. I lead worship part-time for a church here. And with the rest of my time, I write and speak. A couple years ago, I finished up a PhD in English. I did my dissertation work on rhetorical theory, which is sort of like the philosophy of how language works in the world. So that was super fun. Uh, I teach one class right now. It's a linguistics class called Language, Linguistics, and Human Identity. Oh, and wow. though I had to stop this job uh, after COVID, uh, as of a year ago, I used to work uh, very part-time at a bakery in town making buttercream icing. Uh, and my record is that in a single day, I once made 301 pounds of buttercream icing. What? <laughs> I love that you just threw that fun fact in there. 
It yeah. just seemed like, you know, if, if you want to if you want to get a sense for like, who is this Cole's character? I feel like you got to know about the icing. It's important. Oh, my gosh. Now I'm craving icing. Thank you so much, Greg. I just decided this week to be to go on this like intuitive fasting diet. So I'm doing keto this week and like there's no sugar. And so the idea of icing right now is literally like, oh, my gosh, like that's all I want is some icing. Maybe not 300 pounds, but... <laughs> I'm sorry that I've introduced this this new struggle into your life at this exact moment. Why? You just tempted me with the sugar. Okay, no, I'm just kidding. I'll be so immersed in this conversation that I shall forget any mention That's of right. sugar after it. Well, that is so cool. I love it. You are so diverse and so unique. I love that fun fact. Okay, so Greg, we're going to start off with a bang because I recently read one of your books and it's called Single Gay Christian I first have to say I loved it. It's an easy read. So anybody listening right now, get it. You could probably read it in like a day. For me, it took more than that because I took lots of notes and really wanted to soak into it. Uh, But before we get into just this book, you also recently launched another book. Would you be able to tell our amazing people about that book too? Yeah. uh, My new book is called No Longer Strangers, Finding Belonging in a World of Alienation. And it's it's all about, so it draws some from experiences that we'll talk about in this podcast today related to my experience of faith and sexuality, but it also draws a lot from my childhood uh, because I grew up overseas in Indonesia and had had sort of a, a mixed understanding of my sense of national identity because I had parents who were from America and I was very white in a country that was not very white. And then I moved back to the States and I've always felt sort of, sort of out of place in various ways. And so uh, this new book, No Longer Strangers, is uh, reflections on what it looks like for us to find belonging in the world as people who are followers of Jesus. And so who in a sense will always be searching for belonging until we finally find it when we reach glory. Ooh. So that's that's the new book. Oh, I love it. I got to read that because in my book a few months ago, thank you that came out. Thank you for rejecting me. I wrote a whole chapter in the book on belonging. And so I love that um, concept, but I was only able to fit in one chapter. So I'm so curious to hear what your words and coupled with your unique story and living overseas. And also like, I just think what an amazing topic for right here, right now. Were you writing it at all during the pandemic and all the craziness of the last year? I, I was just finishing it up yeah. during the pandemic and it was and it was so so ironic. I mean, I've I've got to read your chapter too yeah. because I had already been thinking to myself, you know, even though I'm telling stories that are particular to my own life, I feel like this is a more universal struggle. Like I feel like there are more people than I think who have a similar thought process to mine that says like do I really fit here? Like, does this really? And then COVID happened. And suddenly I realized like the whole world feels this way. Like maybe they didn't before, but they definitely do now. Right. And so it was, it's just been fascinating to reflect on the ways in which, you know, we can try to construct our own sense of belonging. But ultimately, if we're not rooted in who Jesus is, uh, our belonging will always be uh, it, it will always be subject to potential destruction down the road. Uh, you never know when the next pandemic is going to come along and strip away from you everything that you thought you could rely on to make your life feel like it fit. 
Yes, that's so real. I I think it's so funny. I one of the chapters in my book is also uh, it nods to like FOMO and missing out and embracing alone time and loneliness, right? And I'm like wrote it all before the pandemic hit, and then I was like, ha, well, couldn't be more relevant because now we all we're stuck in a year of alone time, you know. So it's just kind of funny, and like we're all having to face what does it look like to be okay with being alone and different norms and and to your point, the belonging. So and what, how do we find that? When and what is a rooted sense of belonging when, you know, oftentimes we put it in things that um, are menial or th- but we don't even realize. I think last year just shook that up for so many of us, myself included. Yeah. So uh, really excited to transition into the topic today. And we're going to kind of start off with the bank because we're in a very special series right now. And I shared a bit of my heart with you before we got on the podcast. But today we're talking about being a single gay Christian, which is also the title of your book. And I kind of want to instantly just for the sake of the conversation and for fun, kind of get into a little bit of the linguistics here before we get into the full depth of your story. Uh, because I I really found it interesting in, in the research I've been doing and conversations I've been having that you called your book and referred to yourself as a gay Christian because a lot of people, especially Christians, might say like, oh, same-sex attracted or what have you. And so, but you are, referred to yourself so clearly in the title of your book, Gay Christian. And this even these two words together can bring up like a lot of heated thoughts or debates, if you will, because in the things I've learned, and I'm just going to say this right here, you stop me at any point if things I'm sharing right now is incorrect or if you want to add it something. Um, but I just want to kind of bring up my initial thoughts on that because a lot of people, when you say the words gay Christian, they they think it reinforces the quote unquote like gay lifestyle. I put that in major quotations because I think there's a lot of connotations mm-hmm. and assumptions around even the phrase gay lifestyle. And the people, what that they assume is that it's attached to your sexual actions as a person. And so in 2018, actually, there was a statement of social justice that came out whose members said this specifically. They said, we reject gay Christian as a legitimate biblical category. And what they were meaning is that if individuals are struggling with quote unquote, same sex attraction, and they believe in a historically Christian view of marriage. And even if they are celibate, they, these people at the social uh, justice group, they believe that you should still not say that you are a gay Christian, even if like you are, you know, if you, you are same sex attracted, if you believe in a traditional view of marriage, even if you're celibate, they're like, you still shouldn't say the words gay Christian, because, you know, I guess the, the meaning behind why they don't think you should say that is because it reinforces your thinking and your habits and just the way you're living your life. And so I want to kind of like break that down. What is what is it for you that kind of led you to use and identify as gay Christian, even as the title of your book? Well, I'll say, first of all, I'm always excited when when a conversation <laughs> starts and it's like, let's talk about the language like that is just, you know, that's <laughs> speaking my love language right there. Um, and, and I'll say, too, as we get into this, um, that if if you're listening to this and you're sort of looking for a deeper dive into the language conversation, um, there's a back and forth blog series that I wrote with a dear friend of mine named Rachel Gilson. And Rachel and I think differently on this subject. So I prefer to describe myself with the term gay. She prefers to describe herself with the term same-sex attracted. 
even though the experience that the two of us are describing is fairly similar, that we are both attracted to the same sex, we are both committed to a historic Christian understanding of sexual ethics. And so she and I sat down together and wrote a back and forth blog series talking through the way that each of us arrived at our terminology, some of the concerns that we have with the other person's approach, and then our response to those concerns. And, and then we kind of collectively at the end wrote up, like, here is what we together kind of hope for the church. Because Ooh, I think, yeah, I th so I would, I would recommend it to you, Kate. Oh, I th we're going to put it would, in the I show notes. I think you would love it. 100%. I wish I read that even before this. I'm like, I'm going to read that right after it. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think, and, and yeah, so one thing, one thing that I'll, I would just draw from, from that series is to say, I think there are really good uh, thoughts and arguments to be brought up sort of on both sides of this conversation. Mm. Um, but I think always the best place for us to land is to say, hey, if as followers of Jesus, we're generally committed to following Jesus in the same direction, then, you know, there may be some nuanced differences in how we think about things. But I think we can ultimately seek to land in a place of unity, even as we have some some small difference among us. Um, so that that being said, yeah, the way that I arrived at the conclusion that that gay was going to be uh, a more helpful term for me than than say same sex attracted, um, for me a lot of it had to do with the question of how can I speak about my experience in a way that's maximally likely to be well understood by the people who I'm most concerned about communicating well with. Ooh, that's good, yeah. So, so in other words, who most needs to hear me mm. and what are the words that are going to help them understand what it is that I'm saying? Because my experience has been that even though inside of some Christian spaces, there can be this assumption that the word gay always means sexual activity, that it's always paired with a certain kind of quote unquote lifestyle. And I appreciated, Kate, that you put that in big air quotation <laughs> yes. marks because Nobody I think to can myself see me like right now, but it's air quotes, y'all. Oh my gosh. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, you know, like there's a lot of gay people and we have a lot of different lifestyles. Yes. Um, yes. I hate yeah, Neil blanket statements of like, even when people judge Christians, it's like all Christians are this. I'm like, trust me. Some might be like you're saying, but there are a lot of different kinds of Christians out there. Right? Like there is like a wide variety. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And and I think because when I looked at the way that the word gay was typically being used in society generally, uh, at least in, in the circles I was running in, it seemed to me that people tended by the word gay, they tended to mean someone who is consistently attracted to the same sex over the course of time. Even phrases like, uh, bo you know, born gay, it really doesn't make sense to say somebody is born engaging in sexual activity. Nobody's born engaging in sexual activity. <laughs> yeah. But but the question is like, can you be born with a, with a tendency to be attracted, you know, only to the same sex and not to the opposite sex? Uh, but the question itself assumes that to be gay means to be attracted to the same sex. And, and when I looked at, especially folks outside the church and especially mm -hmm. LGBTQ people who felt alienated by nice. the church, it seemed like the message those folks had heard far too often from Christian spaces was, it's impossible for you to be a gay Christian. And what they heard that to mean was, it is impossible for you to be someone who is attracted to the same sex and follow Jesus. 
And so I felt like if that message exists, if there's anybody who feels like, well, I'm gay and therefore that must mean I'm disqualified from the kingdom of God. I felt like those are the people I want to be most clear in speaking to, to say, no, no, no. Like I have an experience that is very much like yours. I too am attracted to the same sex. And yet it is still possible for you and for me to be disciples of Jesus. Even if that means some very costly things, potentially, we are still warmly welcomed into the kingdom of God. And so for me, using gay to describe my own experience has been a way of trying to speak as honestly as possible to anybody who might feel like they're on the outskirts of faith that they are not welcomed in because of their experience of sexuality. And to say there's nothing in terms of your experience of sexual attraction that disqualifies you from following Jesus. Mm, that's so powerful. I think that that's why I wanted to start the conversation with this because immediately there's like this debate. I, I'm going to title this episode Single Gay Christian. I think people are going to be like, excuse me, <laughs> you know, like already off the bat. <laughs> um, Kate, I, da, 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 all the emails coming through. Don't email me, y'all. Okay, listen to this episode first before you email me. And I just encourage you to be open-minded because what I love that you're saying, Greg, it like allows you to have the posture to really approach the people that you're wanting to approach through your story, through your testimony, through your experiences. And I think that's incredibly beautiful. Um, and I also, you know, I, I'm just, uh, I got to say it because this is just me being slightly cynical maybe, but just also just frustrated and sad. Like when I, I, I sometimes get a little bit frustrated again, when I see groups of people, namely some evangelical Christians trying to force like certain dialogue onto something that they've never experienced or they don't and they can't relate to at all. So it's like, no, you have to use this term, even though it's like, but you, you, you're not in my shoes. You don't understand my experience and you don't understand what I'm trying to also do and the things that God has put in my heart and how I'm discipling people and how I'm serving people and the things God is speaking to me. So it just kind of is, you know, in that sense, frustrating, I think, just looking in on the situation. And I guess that also brings up for me, you, you explain a bit about this in your book, but the words that other, if Christians are not comfortable with the terminology, gay Christian, they often use a terminology, same sex attraction. And I'd love for you to just spend a moment or so just explaining where that terminology came from and why in ways it could potentially be dismissive. Yeah. So the terminology of uh, being same-sex attracted was developed as a way of uh, having language that people could use who wanted to acknowledge their experience of sexuality but didn't want to align themselves with some of the assumptions that came along with being gay. And specifically in, in Christian spaces, uh, the one of the earlier responses to gay people was the ex-gay movement, which which was an attempt at compassion. They said, you know, we, we don't want to just dismiss these people off to hell. We want to offer them something in the way of following Jesus. But the conclusion that they came to, like, here's what we should offer them, was we're going to offer these people a way that they can become straight. Mm -hmm. If they can just figure out what went wrong in their upbringing, maybe, if they just pray hard enough, then perhaps God will make them straight. And uh, so the idea was, if you want someone to become straight, if you want them to stop being attracted to the same sex, you need to get them to distance themselves from 
the language of being gay from anything that would make them feel like they are still gay. Mm. And so same-sex attracted language was a way of creating more distance from the the identity of the gay person. Mm. Um, now, as the ex-gay movement went on and it became increasingly clear within these movements that people were not actually changing their sexual attraction or their sexual orientation, the ex-gay movement started putting an even stronger emphasis on the importance of changing your identity label because they would say, hey, well, maybe these people didn't exactly become straight, but we can at least say that they are quote unquote no longer gay because they no longer call themselves gay. And so if you could just convince a gay person to stop calling themselves gay, you could claim them as a success of the ex-gay movement um, and people from the outside would perceive that as like, look at all these people following Jesus and becoming straight, even though what the people were actually doing was ceasing to use the word gay to describe themselves. And so it was a bit of sleight of hand, a bit of wow. linguistic yeah. prestidigitation that enabled the ex-gay movement to continue uh, to continue advancing a narrative that was really unhelpful and damaging for a lot of people for a lot of reasons. Mm, wow. I can't even, oh my gosh, it just is disheartening to me. And it's so hard to hear to think that that is, oh, let, let's make ourselves look a little bit better by just, let me, well, okay. Um, it's not really working this plan to, to make you go from straight to from gay to straight. Okay. That's not really working, but we could convince all these people it is working by just making you use different language. You know, like what? <laughs> like that's, how is that helpful to anybody except for the person who's running the movement? Um, <laughs> like that is, it's just such a, without compassion and it's so it's self-seeking, you know, it's like, Oh, but like, and wow, I don't know. I have lots of thoughts. And, <laughs> and I think sure. And, and I think to like, to be clear, I, you know, I, I don't know the hearts behind the people who were who were making these linguistic suggestions. And and I and I do know, too, you know, I, I have some dear friends like my friend Rachel, for instance, um, who do find that it's more personally helpful for them to use language uh, that does indicate sort of a shift in their experience. And so, for instance, uh, among those people who prefer same sex attracted language over LGBTQ or gay or queer or something like that. Um, often it's people who were at one time pursuing same-sex sexual activity and calling themselves gay and who then as a way of symbolizing a, a new commitment to Jesus that uh, was related to a shift in their sexual ethics, they said, I, I would, it would be helpful for me personally to use a different term now to mm -hmm. describe myself. Um, yeah. And so I think there can be, you know, I, I certainly don't want to suggest that you know, nobody should ever use the term same-sex attracted. Hey, if you find it personally helpful, right, if right, using right. that term helps you be, be close to Jesus, I, I bless and encourage it. Um, but I think there are also people like me for whom uh, when, uh, I mean, there, there was no time at which I was sort of uh, out on the market seeking to be a, a sexually active person with people of any sex. Um, and so for me to move from, a, a place of shame, a place of being in the closet, a place of wishing that I would die and nobody would know that I was gay. That was sort of like my dream growing up. I was like, the best way for this story to end is I just die without anybody realizing I'm gay, which obviously has worked out very well for me at this point in my life. Um, but but there was a time when that, when that was the dream. Yeah. 
And and so for me to to begin to call myself gay, a, a part of the power of that shift mm-hmm. was actually for me to move away from the shame, from some of the sense of self-hatred that I felt when I was growing up, to begin to say, no, actually, there's value in me being really open about my experience. And there's no need for me to feel some excessive weight of shame just because this is how I happen to experience my attraction. Yeah. Wow. What you're, what I think is just so paramount here for everyone listening is like, you guys, we, we just have to not make assumptions on and seek to understand people's stories. We have another episode in the series about the trans community and um, trans identity. And I learned so much as I studied through that, that the word trans and a trans person, it means different things to different people. And instead of assuming things based on the word that every single trans person is right now transitioning and they're doing, you know, it's actually not the case. It's so nuanced. It's very unique and it's much more dynamic than what we try to flatten it as. And so, you know, what my learning in that conversation as well was like, how can I seek to understand when I encounter a trans person? My question is, what does that mean to you? Or I'd love to hear more about, you know, your story. Um, And I think that's important in this conversation, Greg, to say like, you know, to not judge somebody immediately when they are Christian and identify as a gay Christian and also not judge somebody immediately if they're a Christian and they say, I'm a same sex attracted Christian, you know, let's just be curious and let's have a posture of like, I'm so curious. Instead of assuming that you saying you're a gay Christian means you must be leaving, leading a gay lifestyle or you must be all about the quote unquote gay agenda and whatever politically, um, because we immediately make that assumption too, just the word gay. And everyone's like, you're a liberal. (laughs) And I'm like, wait, what? Like there's so many assumptions we attach to terminology today. And I'm like, what if we can, can kind of get past some of that and, you know, be what Jesus called us to be, which is curious and loving and compassionate and just wanting to understand people's stories. So I think that's, it's so beautiful that you framed up the differences even between you and your friend, Rachel, and how you guys came to using the kind of language that you both do. All right, y'all, if there is one thing that I have learned during this COVID season, it is the importance of knowing how to cook at home yummy and delicious meals. I actually got really super into making some really good recipes in COVID, such as beef bourguignon and getting my Julia Child sense of self out. And then I also even learned how to make a really yummy hearty steak. But here's the key that I learned while making delicious homemade meals. You have to have the right kitchen tools. So that's where I want to introduce you to today's episode sponsor, Made In. Made In is a cookware and kitchenware brand that works with renowned chefs and artisans to produce some of the world's best pots, pans, knives, and wine glasses. They source the finest materials and partner with renowned craftsmen to make premium kitchen tools available directly to you without all of the markup. I love that their cookware distributes heat evenly and can even go easily from the stovetop into the oven. Also, I used to only have really terrible knives, but man, did my life change when I got some chef's knives. You guys, these knives that they have are fully forged, perfectly balanced, and they stay sharp. 
And don't even just take it from me. They have over 28,000 five-star reviews. Their products are used by some of the best chefs at Michelin star restaurants around the world. Right now, Maiden is offering our Heart of Dating listeners 15% off your first order with the promo code KATE. This is the best discount available anywhere online for Maiden products, you guys. Go to madeincookware.com slash Kate and use promo code Kate for 15% off your first order. May I also add, this is a really incredible gift to give somebody for a wedding or for a birthday or whatever comes up. I love Maiden Cookware as a gift. So you can go to madeincookware.com slash Kate and use promo code Kate for 15% off your first order. Alrighty, my friends, here's the deal. I'm in my 30s and I'm yet to be married. As such, it's crossed my mind a time or two about my fertility and how I'm going to start a family in the future. If you're a woman, especially over 30, you've probably thought through this as well. Be honest, okay? But if I'm being that much more honest, I haven't really wanted to go to the doctor about any of it. It's just felt like a chore and also something that feels really foreign to me. But if you are curious, like me, about your fertility and want to stop being anxious about something you truly have no idea about, then I want to share with you about a brand I recently discovered and loved. It's called Modern Fertility. There's so much about fertility that's a complete mystery. That's where the Modern Fertility Hormone Test comes in. Think of your fertility hormones as tiny detectives. They can bring you tons of insight into your egg count, reproductive timeline, and even possible outcomes for egg freezing and IVF. Everything you need to know to get proactive about your fertility. That's why Modern Fertility was created. It's the easy and affordable way to test your fertility hormones at home with a simple finger prick. You mail it in with a prepaid label and you'll get your personalized results within 10 days. Traditional testing with your doctor can cost over $1,000, but Modern Fertility? It only costs $159 to get the exact same information. And if you go to modernfertility.com heart, you can get $20 off your test. Also, if you have an HSA or FSA, you can use those dollars on Modern Fertility. You'll get insight into your hormone levels, how many eggs you have, and other important fertility factors. The results go deep into what every hormone means. And you can also talk one-on-one -on -one with a fertility nurse to review your results and options for next steps. If you're anything like me when it comes to fertility, my thoughts have been, I'll just wait and see what happens. But that's a bit odd, right? Because there are tools to help us plan and track everything in our lives, such as finances, steps and careers, and school, all the things. So why is fertility left to wait and see? Knowledge is power. And when you know more, you can make better decisions for your body, your health, and your future. There aren't many decisions bigger than having a child, but for many women, their fertility is a big question mark. So if you do want kids today or maybe one day in the future, you need information to make the decision that's best for you. Right now, Modern Fertility is offering our listeners $20 off the test when you go to modernfertility.com heart. That means your test will only cost $139 instead of the several hundred or even a thousand plus dollars it could cost at a doctor's office. Get $20 off your fertility test when you go to modernfertility.com heart. That's modernfertility.com heart.
So Greg, I want to transition into getting even more into the meat of your story. And so before we do that, I kind of pinged you before our conversation. I loved reading the prelude of your book. Would you just, to to start off some of the story dialogue here, would you be open to reading a part of that for us? It, it honestly kind of made me tear up. It was beautiful. So I, I would love for everyone else to experience that. Yeah, I'd be honored. Here goes. I'll tell you how I cried and prayed and begged God to make me straight, or else to make me believe that the Bible left room for monogamous same-sex relationships. I'll tell you how God kept refusing to do either one, how he kept pointing me back to the cross of Christ, how I followed my Savior in costly obedience and became a mythical creature, a thing that wasn't supposed to exist, a single gay Christian. I'll show you the world through my eyes, the books on Christian masculinity that never seemed to be about me, the churches that treated my singleness like an acne problem that could be cleared up with a few weeks treatment, the sincere Christians who called it love when they talked about people like me with revulsion in their voices. I'll tell you what it's like to belong nowhere, to know that much of my Christian family will forever consider me unnatural, dangerous, because of something that feels as involuntary as my eye color. And to know that much of the LGBTQ community that shares my experience as a sexual minority will disagree with the way I've chosen to interpret the call of Jesus, believing I've bought into a tragic, archaic ritual of self-hatred. Self-hatred. I'll tell you about that too. I'll tell you how hard it is some days to look in the mirror and believe that God could have possibly said over me, as he did over all creation, it is good. But I promise my story won't all be sadness and loneliness and struggle. I'll tell you good things too, hopeful things, funny things, like the time I accidentally came out to my best friend during his bachelor party. I'll tell you what it felt like the first time someone looked me in the eyes and said, you are not a mistake. I'll tell you that joy and sorrow are not opposites, that my life has never been more beautiful than when it was most brokenhearted. If you'll listen, I promise I'll tell you everything, and you can decide for yourself what you want to believe about me. All you have to promise in return is that you'll wait a little while before you reach your verdict about me. Wait until you've heard everything. Wait until you know me. And then, well, then the rest is up to you. <sighs> I just feel like sighing. <laughs> that was amazing. I just felt it as you read it, Greg. Man, I'm brought to tears in ways just um, just thinking of how so there's just a lack of compassion, a lack of seeking to understand, so many assumptions, a lot of labeling, a lot of alienation and the word self-hatred. I wrote about actually self-hatred in my book um, as well. And just that experience, I understand that version of that, my own version of that self-hatred. Mm. Man, so I just thank you for for sharing and, and sharing what you're going to sh- 
continue to share today. And for everyone listening, man, just (laughs) go rewind and re-listen to those words if you need to, to just know that Greg is not the only one experiencing this. If you are a straight Christian listening to this podcast right now, what would it look like for you to, to know that people like Greg are real people that God loves? What would it look like for you to stop making assumptions? What would it look like for you to start befriending them? What would it look like for you to have hard conversations or conversations where you don't, where you admit to them up front, I don't know everything, but I want to know about you. And I may get it wrong sometimes, but I want to come alongside of you. And I'm sorry for the ways I've judged you in the past. So you guys, can we just have that posture as we continue this dialogue? Greg, thank you so much for reading that. That was so touching. So something I want to kind of start um, transitioning into is we've talked a bit about it, but we, there's a lot of stereotypes, I think, and assumptions that are placed on gay Christians and gay people overall. Um, and you refer to some of them in your book. I'm going to reference a few. If you're gay, it's because of your rebellion against God. If you're gay, it's because you had a distant father or overbearing mother. If you're gay, you were probably abused as a child. If you're gay, you obviously lack close male friendships. If you're afraid you're gay, don't worry, that's extremely rare. It won't really happen to you. (laughs) So I'd love to just kind of hear how maybe some of those stereotypes started playing into your journey as you were kind of figuring out this part about yourself. Yeah. When I when I was beginning my 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 journey of recognizing that I was attracted to the same sex, uh, there weren't a lot of narratives that I had available to me to kind of make sense of that experience. And and at the time, so it was it was in early puberty that I began to be aware that I was attracted to guys. Uh, I especially noticed it in youth group when they would gather us all together uh, and split us off into groups. They would be like boys over here, girls over there. And what they would tell the boys is like, look, boys, we know you all want to look at pictures of naked women, but don't do it. And I was like, (laughs) like, it turns out I'm really good at not looking at pictures of naked women. Um, (laughs) And so I started, you know, I started to believe I was like the holiest 12 year old in the world. Um, And and so when I when I did begin to realize like, oh, wait, no, like I sort of like I, I do have an experience of sexuality. It turns out it's just not this one that everybody's telling me I have as I began scrambling for some kind of explanation to make sense of what was going on. Uh, those explanations that that you've just read, Kate, uh, those were the kinds of things that I was finding as I was searching for like, what does this mean? Why did this happen? Um, What's wrong with me? Like, it must be one of these things. Is this my thing? Like, <laughs> Exactly. So I'm kind of going down the checklist being like, well, I think my parents are great. Is is my dad distant? Is my mother overbearing? I'm pretty sure they're not, you know? Um, oh my gosh. And, and, uh, and trying to, yeah, trying to see if there was a way in which, uh, you know, should I be trying to read some of these traumas into my life in some way? Um, but that didn't really seem to make sense. And, you know, it, I think because these these stories were in large part they were more products of the X gay movement and again I'm, I'm it, it sounds like I'm going to say a ton of negative things about the X gay movement which I think is largely fair I think again I think <laughs> yes. there were a lot of problems with the X gay movement but I think uh, again some of these things were rooted in some misplaced compassion mm-hmm. in that the compassionate thing the most compassionate thing that a lot of Christians could think of to say to gay people was 
we know a way we know a way to rescue you from this oh wow. um, right i think that's still the posture of a lot of straight christians it, you know you you look at somebody who's gay and wants to follow jesus and and you want to be compassionate and sometimes the most compassionate thing that pops in your head is like i can make you no longer gay um i, I think i think that's a problematic impulse for for two reasons one because it, it distracts my attention or the attention of other LGBTQ folks away from the thing that we should actually be doing, which is not trying to be straight, but it's falling more deeply in love with Jesus and becoming more obedient to him, regardless of our experience of sexuality. Uh, and, and I think it also somewhat problematically uh, can cause straight people to sort of uh, look at the LGBTQ conversation uh from as if from a height, as if feeling like, ah, there is a way in which I was correctly made and someone else was not. Mm. Uh, so, sometimes I think what what some straight Christians need is a reminder that your sexual orientation is also not perfect, is also right. a reflection of the fall. That the mm. fact that you might experience the capacity to lust after all sorts of people of the opposite sex that you're not married to is just as much a product of the fall as the fact that I have the capacity to lust after people of the same sex. Right. Um, Word. Oh my I, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> and the fact that I don't experience temptation to lust after people of the opposite sex, that even in my youth, when I was, uh, for very unfortunate reasons, trying to conjure up the power to lust after a woman, I just didn't know how to do it. Uh, even though when I was young, I thought that was bad that I wasn't lusting after women. I can now look at it and say, that is, I think, a remarkable gift that the Lord has given me, um, that it is perfectly easy for me to think of my sisters in Christ as sisters without a hint of a desire to objectify them in any way. I love that about myself. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think when we stop thinking of the distinction between uh, straight people and gay people or same-sex sexual orientation and opposite-sex sexual orientation as, oh, one of these things is is broken and fallen and needs to be fixed, and the other is sort of the good and right and proper, what if we were to instead say, look, all of us, after the fall of humankind, we all have a sexuality that is in some way fallen, and yet we all also bear the fingerprints of a God who put us together and said at the moment he created us, like, hot dang, that is very good. <laughs> the um, hot dang, that's what it is for me right there, Greg, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he said that. <laughs> I love it. And and so I think I think yeah, I think these these explanations for like here's why you're gay, here's what I know about you and your life because I know that you're gay. I think they were often explanations that were rooted in a desire to explain it away, a desire to fix it. And I think when we get ourselves away from that narrative, when we start to say, you know, maybe I don't need to know why some people are gay and why some people are straight. Maybe I don't need to prove that it is caused by these things. Maybe I don't need to figure out how to fix it because, and again, I use fix here with the same big air quotations yes. that Kate was using Thank earlier, yeah. right? Maybe I don't need to fix it because maybe the invitation for all of us is not to fix ourselves into a certain kind of sexual orientation. Maybe the invitation for all of us is simply to surrender the experience of sexuality that we have to Jesus and trust him to sort out the rest of it. Yes. Wow. That's so, that's so beautiful. You know, and you mentioned this earlier and, and I know it was a part of your journey because I read your book, but at one point, because of all these pressures and, you know, a lot of these stereotypes and assumptions, there was moments in your journey where you're like, 
like, okay, well, maybe if I just let me just try to be straight and pray the gay away, maybe it'll work. Um, I, I want to, I would love for you to open that up for us and just walk us through some of that. And even in within that, you tried to date a girl at one point. And so would you just give us a little bit of taste of how that contributed to part of your journey of getting to where you are today, being a single gay Christian? Yeah. When I, when I was trying to figure out like, is, is, is becoming straight a thing I can do? As I said, all the explanations of like, here's, here's why you're gay didn't quite make sense. But I still figured, you know, praying I can do. Like, I can talk to Jesus. I'm all about talking to Jesus. And, and so as I prayed it, and tried to look around at the world and say, like, is there still a chance for me to, you know, pursue an opposite sex marriage, to get married? Um, I was still very much operating within a mindset that said, Really, the ideal for almost every Christian, you know, with a brain uh, is that you should all want to get married. Like, it didn't really cross my mind early on to say, like, maybe I get to be single. Maybe that's cool. Singleness did not strike me as remotely cool at the time. Um, <laughs> and, and so so I figured, you know, if this story is going to have a good ending, it's supposed to end with me getting married. And 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 so, you know, uh, as I prayed, I, I was looking around at the world and trying to figure out, like, I have these female friends and they're really cool. And, you know, some of them I'd be perfectly happy to share apartments with for the rest of my life. Like, <laughs> does that count as falling in love? Like, is that enough? Um, and it's, you know, it's tricky because you've never done it before. Like you're, you're, you're going through puberty, you're, you know, meeting people and you don't really have a sense of like, what does it feel like to fall in love? Yeah. And so uh, so I reached a point eventually in college where I was like, well, I have all these cool friends. Maybe you just got to pick one and decide to fall in love. Um, and then, and then, you know, and, and boom, there, you're, you're good to go. And so I, so I began dating. Basically, I, I picked one of my dearest friends who was just super amazing. And I was like, yeah, I should want to marry this person. I know intellectually speaking that she is beautiful. You know, I can I can clearly tell that we get along with all these things. I was like, she's great wife material. Uh, <laughs> and so we started dating. Yeah, in, in the context of our dating, I mean, sh she was wonderful. And yet it became increasingly clear to me as I tried to do the normal dating things yeah. that I was not predisposed to want those dating things. Mm. And I, I started to realize, and, and here I'm speaking very much for myself. I'm certainly yeah. not speaking for the experience of everybody. Um, but in, in my own case, uh, it, it felt to me like I was never going to desire her in the way that I felt like somebody who was going to marry her ought to desire her. Uh, and, and I knew that there were people who uh, were, were very much capable of desiring her who perhaps already did, you know? Um, uh, and in fact, she eventually, after we broke up, uh, she ended up getting married to my, uh, old college. Oh roommate. yeah. I remember you uh, And they've that. got a yeah. couple, they've Aww. got a couple kids together now and it's adorable. It's just wonderful. And I look at their marriage now and their kids and all the things. And I'm just like, I'm so glad that she ended up married to somebody who was really eager to be married to her, who could actually desire her in all the ways that it is fitting for uh, a husband to desire a wife. 
uh, and not just get married to me, who I kind of felt as we were dating, it sort of felt like I was doing like a paint by numbers. Like I knew what I was supposed to do. You know, here you hold hands. Now the lips should join in kissing. It was like a very analytic thing. Um, <laughs> Robotic. Like, okay. And then, oh yeah, check my notes. Okay. Then I'm supposed to do this. <laughs> this is next. Step three. <laughs> and so I think, I think for me, realizing, realizing that 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 relationship, that just entering into a relationship as somebody who loved Jesus and was praying and was willing to become straight, that those things were not going to make me straight. That that for me was kind of the 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 sense of closure. I mean, there there was another sort of consideration of dating that I had after that. But when I felt a clear no also from God to that subsequent dating relationship, I felt a sense of closure. And I concluded, I don't think I'm getting married to a woman. I don't think that is the thing that God is calling me to, mm. um, which which then launched for me a, a, a period of wrestling with yes, what I understood perfect. the Bible to say about sexual ethics. Yes. If I'm not going to get married to a woman, I've still heard that getting married is a thing that everybody's supposed to do. So does that mean I get married to a man? And so I went back to scripture and, and did as, as deep a dive as I could do into the question of, you know, was, was uh, same-sex marriage going to be an option for me as a follower of Jesus? And, and you know, we, we don't need to get into all the, all the nitty-gritty of that in, in this conversation here, uh, but my conclusions basically were, I found that the conversation was complicated. Yeah, um, yeah. It was more we complicated. We hate it. We're like, no, I want a black and white answer over here, <laughs> right? And there were so many well-meaning people in my life who had told me basically, like, flip open the Bible in your English translation, find the word "gay" in there somewhere. It's bad. Moving on, you know, case closed. <laughs> you know, find something more pressing, like the Calvinist-Arminian debate. Oh my gosh! <laughs> and. And so it was actually, it was really important for me to look for myself and to see, no, this is more complicated than I was led to believe. And, and I also discovered that some of the things that I had thought were going to be in the Bible were not in there. I had thought there was going to be a promise that I would become straight. Yeah. Um, you know, a then shalt thou experience the sexual <laughs> attraction only to the opposite sex and never to the same sex. I was so ready for that to be in there in like the book yeah. of second hesitations, but it was not, you know? Um, uh, and 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 I also, you know, despite finding complexity, I also did end up coming to the conclusion that that I don't think the best reading of the text leaves room for followers of Jesus to pursue a same-sex marriage. Um, and so I sort of, by process of elimination, was like, well, if no opposite-sex marriage and also no same-sex marriage, then I suppose I shall be single and celibate. Um, which I mean, the, the process of elimination is probably not like the most encouraging or heartening way to get to a posture of celibacy. I've since discovered that there are other reasons that I'm actually really excited to be single and yeah. celibate. But when I first arrived, it was more of it was more of a resignation, more of a like, well, failing other options and still wanting to follow Jesus. I guess this is what we're going with. Yeah, I, I love it. I mean. <laughs> And I want to talk to you through your singleness and so many people listening are single um, before we get into that and some of the joy you found in this season of celibacy and being a single gay Christian. I want to just call out and and camp on something that you did kind of mention that you also talk about in your book. But, uh, you know, you talk about that the season of, you know, debating the divine, kind of being frustrated and kind of breaking things down and 
you know what I found even in the work I've been doing, um, we really love black and white answers. And when I try to bring up topics like gray topics, for example, masturbation, we won't go into that right now, but like something that isn't specifically mentioned in the Bible. And yet we're all like, oh, that word itself brings up so much shame. Everyone's like, <laughs> it's, there are like slew of comments. If I bring up that word, everyone's like, blah, blah, blah. I'm like oh my gosh, everyone has their very own opinion. That's very black and white. And And I'm just going to read this uh, from your book really quick. You say, sometimes we're so in love with easy answers and calendar-sized sound bites that we fall out of love with the Bible itself. We overlook the messy, the nuanced, the complicated. Or we try to read the Bible like a systemic theology, smoothing over the lumps with a rolling pin, forgetting that God could have given us a systematic theology if he wanted to. And he instead chose to give us something unsystematic, something dangerous. And I love this. I was like, ooh, yes, let's go. (laughs) I am like, I'm so, even just in this last year, I feel like there's been so much for me that's come up just with the world at large and the state of our country and the, you know, everything that I'm like, wow, we really want everything to be so black and white and just isn't. I mean, COVID itself is a great example of like, why? Why did this happen? Why does it have to affect everybody? God, what are you doing here? You know, and the reality is we're all trying to figure out the answers and we won't there are some answers that God doesn't provide. And when the, when it comes to, um, LGBTQ and this whole conversation, this is where evangelicals specifically are like, they demand these answers. Like God, is it from nature or from nurture? Like are, are people born gay or are they not? Is, is it, are people, can they really, is it, is it really an orientation or did this just culture, did culture influence it so much? Is it just an invention of culture and people just wanting to do whatever they want to do? And we're trying to find all these issues. Like we're trying to solve this issue, like the gay issue or whatever, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. again, I insert the air quotes. And I feel like, because of this and because, you know, even in doing this series, I waited so long and prayed so long about doing this because I knew as soon as I bring up this topic, woo, you know, everyone ha- comes out guns a blazing with their judgments and their opinions and assumptions. And my heart has compassion in senses for how people have gotten to those opinions because they could be so deeply rooted. At the same time, I'm like, well, I'm not going to sit here and be afraid of everyone's deeply rooted opinions and assumptions and potentially harmful dialect. I I see that there has been so much harm done in this area that we as Christians, we need to shift this. It's, it is so dire that we shift it. And so my question to you, um, Greg, in your experience, how do you think that as Christians, our inability to really step into the gray has kept us from the calling of Jesus, which in many ways is compassion and love and connectedness? You know, I was thinking even earlier when you were uh, making some of your comments about terminology and just the importance of hearing what people are saying and not insisting that everybody use language exactly the way that we do. I think we have a tendency as human beings, and especially as human beings who follow Jesus and want other people to also follow Jesus, we can sometimes have this tendency to insist that our lives ought to be the carbon copy by which everybody else should also live their lives. And so, for instance, here's the language that I have found helpful 
as I have pursued Jesus. Therefore, if you want to pursue Jesus, you ought to use the exact same language. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and here are, here are the conclusions that I have reached. And so if you want to love Jesus, you're going to have to reach all the exact same conclusions that I reach. Um, and because of that, then I think when, sometimes when we get to these messy conversations, we can feel like the most important thing we can possibly do is come up with a nice, clear answer that we can then hand to other people and be like, look, I have your answer. Just fit my nice, tidy mold, won't you? <laughs> and, and, and the problem with that, it seems to me, is that it's really like even if even if Kate, even if you came to me and now I say that you seem like a very trustworthy woman. Kate. I just, <laughs> you know, you, I'm Greg. getting, I'm getting those <laughs> vibes. Um, but even if you came to me and said like, Greg, I have the master plan for your life. I have answered all the tricky questions for you. Just do everything that I think. Here you go. <laughs> even if, even if I was like, Kate is wise, I should take all her suggestions. I don't think it would be possible for me to actually walk a lifetime following Jesus on the basis of your faith. Yeah. I don't think it's possible. And especially when we're talking about things like uh, people whose obedience to Jesus includes maybe a lifetime of sexual self-denial. I don't think it's possible for me to walk a lifetime of sexual self-denial on the basis of someone else's faith. And because of that, the most constructive thing that another person can give to me is not all of the nice, tidy answers that they have concluded, let them just hand them to me on a platter. The most constructive thing they can possibly do is point me back into relationship with Jesus and trust that as I walk with Jesus, if it is indeed Jesus that I am following, mm -hmm. he will guide me well. Mm -hmm. And I think if we actually trust that that is true, if we actually trust that Jesus can guide people well, then we become much more able to enter into the tricky spaces, into the messy things, into the places where we're tempted to smooth over the complexities with a rolling pin. We can actually enter into those conversations with a lot more nuance and a lot more open-handedness because we're no longer so concerned with making sure that we have a nice, tidy, prepackaged response to hand to other people. But we can instead say, look, this thing is fundamentally about a relationship between you and the creator of the universe who knows you better than I ever will. And so the best thing I can possibly do is foster that relationship uh, with you. Oh, my gosh. That's so good. Man, like, yes, this is what we should be doing. Man, I love it. I love your perspective. Um, and it's just powerful, Greg. Gosh, I don't want to take up all your time, but there's two more things I just want to touch on. One, I'll start into the first one right now, but the first time you came out to a pastor, I loved that story. And I would just love for you to briefly share how healing that moment was for you because I can imagine and knowing your story a bit from the book and uh, that it was probably a moment of like, is this, what is this person going to think? Are they going to judge me? What are they like? What, knowing all the other stereotypes that you'd already seen and heard so often. Uh, and I think that picture of that moment with that pastor was just beautiful. And I think it models so much of how we as Christians and straight Christians could come alongside someone who's sharing their story with us. Yeah. Yeah, so the the way the way that all went down, uh, Aaron, who was the pastor of my church at the time and is still my pastor, I've been yes. at the same church ever since. Um, dear Aaron, 
uh, he was the very first person. He was not the first person I came out to. I think he was number six or seven, perhaps. But he was the first person who I had intentionally set up a time to come out to. Been like, you know, I should probably have this conversation with my pastor. And so I had time to get really nervous about it in advance of the conversation. And yeah, I I went into that conversation really, really not knowing uh, how he would react. I mean, I had hopes and I also had fears, um, but I didn't know what he was going to say. And and one thing that he said toward the end of our conversation, he said, you know, Greg, I don't know, like, I don't know why this is your story. I don't know why this is your experience. Um, and I don't know what you'll go on to do in the world. You know, like <laughs> you, you see your life right now as like a sort of a, an uncertain adventure unfolding. And he was like, I don't know what's going to happen to you either. Let me know. <laughs> um, but he said like, I don't know all of those things, but I do know that you are not a mistake. Mm. And, and that moment was so powerful for me because it was, it was the first time that I had really believed about myself. And well, at the time he said it, I'm not sure that I did believe it. Um, but him saying it was the beginning of me saying, perhaps the fact that I am who I am and have the experience of the world that I do at this moment in this time is not is not like a shock to God, right? Like, I, I, I'm not necessarily like blaming God for making me gay here. Like, I think the, the reasons I'm gay and the reasons you're straight and the reasons we both have a fallen sexuality, like it's all complicated and I'm not going to pretend to know exactly how God made all those decisions. But I do think there's perhaps a kind of divine intentionality in me having the experience that I do in the time that I do. And yeah, and, and Aaron's words were sort of the first time that I had begun to think like, maybe I don't just need to sit around bemoaning the fact that I'm gay and hope that I die and nobody else knows, but maybe instead I can, I can grapple with my sexuality in the context of asking, what is the positive thing that God is calling me to? Hey, if this is my experience of the world, if, if I'm going to go through life likely being gay until I die, um, then how can I how can I look at that experience and then begin to think positively about what it is that God wants to call me toward? Not just what am I saying no to, but actually what do I get to say yes to as somebody with this kind of story? Yeah. Well, that brings up the last question then for me, which is like, you are single. And I love that in a sense, everyone, so many people listening, they're single. And so like, hey, we're in that boat all together. Hey, yo. And, and you found a sense of, and there's a lot of people listening that are like, you know, really struggling because the idea that potentially they may be single forever is terribly scary for them. But I love what we can learn from even the way you're living your life and the richness that you're finding in being single and being celibate. Would you share maybe just a few things in your singleness journey that you have found to be enriching and beautiful? You know, it's it's interesting because the the Bible refers to singleness as as a gift. Right. Uh and and sometimes I you know maybe maybe some of you can resonate with me on this. Sometimes I feel like I have the gift of singleness, and, and I sort of look at it and I'm like, is there a gift receipt with this thing? You know, yes. like where do I return to the store? Um, and, and yet I think I think the well, so when when the Bible uses uses that that term gift, I think it's important to note that the Bible also describes things like prophecy as a gift. Um, and if you look at what happens to the prophets in the Bible, um, 
you know, they, it's not like a super sexy vocation to be a prophet. It's not like you go around predicting the ends of sports games. Um, when you're a prophet in the Bible, God gives you insights to share with the world for the sake of the world. And yet you are generally reviled. You know, you got to go around like cooking your bread over poop and lying on one side for three years <laughs> and generally just being hated by the people who you share this message with. Yeah, um, true. And so when the Bible calls prophecy a gift, it's not saying here is a gift that is given to you for your warm fuzzies. Um, right. It's saying yes. here is yeah. here is a way in which you can become a gift to those around you. Right. This is this is a gift that is then uh, meant to make you a conduit uh, of the love of God to the world around you. Um, and so, in our singleness or in our marriage, if you're married, we we are equipped to follow Jesus and to serve Jesus and to love others in a distinctive kind of way. That there, there are ways that I get to love and serve people as a single person that I, I would not be doing if I were a married person. Partly because, you know, there would probably be some different investments of my time. Um, partly because married couples in relationship with people is just a different dynamic than single people in relationship I have I have some married friends, for instance, who I'm dear friends with both the both the husband and the wife. Um, and they'll just say, like, it's really refreshing to also have relationships with single people. And like, we're not sure this would have the same kind of beauty if you were married. Um, I think there are gifts that come with that. I think one of my favorite things about being single is that by virtue of having said, instead of picking a single human being alive on earth right now to direct a, a special set apart. Uh, love for. I've got special love for Jesus. And other than that, I just get to give my love away freely to everybody. Um, one time, one time a friend made a comment to me in passing. They were like, Greg, you're just kind of like everybody's boyfriend, um, which I thought was hilarious and maybe slightly awkward. Um, but also I hope that there's something really beautiful and true about that, that those of us who, who sort of lean into the opportunity of singleness to say like, no, like instead of picking a single person and saying, I'm, you know, extra devoted to this person, we can devote ourselves in a, in a holistic and self-giving kind of way to all the people that we encounter. Um, and so maybe in that sense, uh, to be single and to love people, uh, means that, Singleness is not about loving less, but it's, it's in fact, the very opposite. It's the privilege of getting to love even more profligately, to get to love even more broadly. Mm, oh, my gosh. It's a message we all needed to hear from you today, Greg, myself included. <laughs> so I thank you for that. I think what's so interesting is just so many people listening that are single can probably relate to the fact that, unfortunately, they're is a lot of dialogue out there that's like singleness is a plague, or you even said it in your prelude, right? That the church treats, I'm going to read it again, <laughs> the, the, the churches that treated my singleness like an acne problem that could be cleared up with a few weeks treatment. <laughs> and so I laughed at that because I was like, man, I mean, I can relate to that. Or how many people are like, oh, honey, you're still single. Oh my gosh, why are you still single? I can help you with that. And I'm like, but what if I also like, like being single right now? Is that a problem? Like, is it okay <laughs> that like... I actually love this season and 
yeah, like for me as a single person, I, I do desire marriage, but I also love my season. You don't have to have pity on me. Like, this is okay. Like, you know, it's like this assumption that it's a, a viral plague that must be cured when <laughs> biblically it's so the opposite, you know, like Paul was single, Jesus was single so much of, and he was preaching so much married advice. I love that. I love that Paul was preaching all this married advice and he was a single person. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, hello, ayo, <laughs> like, look at what we got here. Uh, so Greg, this has been so fun and enriching. I would love to keep going, but I, I'm going to start closing the conversation by asking you the same question that every listener gets asked, which is just today for the heart of dating listeners, what would be your final nugget of dating advice for them? It could apply to anything. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I love, you know, you know, you were saying that the Apostle Paul gets to preach about marriage. I always love giving dating advice, even though like I did it once for two months and it really did not go well. I'm like, hey, now that I'm celibate, I'm full of dating advice. So and and so maybe to, to just sort of pick up on the conversation we were just having about yeah. gifts. I think I'll say this about dating. What if in the same way that we think about prophecy as a gift and singleness as a gift, what if you were to also think about the pursuit of a dating relationship or a future marriage relationship, um, not as the kind of gift that is given to you for your own comfort and happiness, um, but actually as a gift that is meant to be a way that God wants to make you a gift to the world around you, that you and your dating partner or your future spouse are actually better equipped to follow Jesus and to love others as a collective unit than you would be individually. Uh, and I would say, if if you enter into uh, dating or uh, the pursuit of marriage with that mentality that says, this is not fundamentally about me, this is not for my own happiness or pleasure or comfort, I think you're actually much better suited, uh, not just to follow Jesus within that vocation, but actually to discover the kind of joy that you get when you follow Jesus wholeheartedly and receive in return a joy that's so much better than what you would have earned for yourself. Uh, I think ultimately, whether it's marriage or lifelong singleness that we find ourselves pursuing, or whether it's temporary singleness that may eventually become marriage down the line, I think we're best set up to find joy as followers of Jesus if our posture is to say, this is not a gift that's about me. This is a gift that is given to me by Jesus in order for me to serve others. And it's in embracing that calling that I actually discover more happiness than I could possibly conjure up on my own. Mm, so beautiful. Greg, you're an amazing person, amazing man. Thank you, gosh, for sharing your story and kind of navigating these this dialogue with me. It's been so fun on my end. I hope the listeners have been enjoying it. It's been a gift, honestly. Speaking of gifts, I feel like today and this conversation was a gift. Um, if people want to connect with you, Greg, get this book that we talked about today or your new book or anything else you have going on, I would love for them to be able to do that. How did they do it? Yeah, let's see. Uh, you can find me at my website, which is gregcoles.com or gregorycoles.com. If you're feeling fancy, go with Gregory, but they both go to the same place. You can find me on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. 
And yeah, you can you can read the books, which I mean, no pressure. You know, there are probably better books in the world, but I'm oh, I'm rather fond of them both. I like to think they're <laughs> worthwhile. So yeah, Single Gay Christian and No Longer Strangers are the books. I love it. Greg, thank you so much for sharing the space with me today. And I'm so excited, hopefully, to meet in real life at some point. Oh yeah, we gotta do it. This has been so much fun, Kate. As, <laughs> as we discussed earlier today, I think you and I were destined to be friends. So yeah. let's work on that. Oh, I'm so grateful for Greg. Isn't he just the best? Wouldn't you just like to continue to hear him talk? Don't you just want to be friends with him? That's exactly how I felt after I left that conversation with Greg. I was like, I just want to be his friend. He's seemingly just one of the nicest, kindest men. I love how he shared his story and his heart. I love the excerpt from his book that he read and so beautifully shared with us. And something so profound that I just loved was his interaction with his pastor when he came out to his pastor. And I would just love to encourage you guys. What would it look like if we took more of that posture? If we didn't lead with our morals and our ethics or judgment, but if we led with compassion and overwhelming radical love, and if we offered to come alongside someone in their journey, Man, there just could be so much transformation if that is our posture, if that is how we started leading these relationships and conversations with LGBTQ plus individuals. So that's my challenge to you. What stood out to you today from Greg's conversation? And how can you start actually doing these things in your life today? All right, guys, that's it for today's episode. We will see you here next week for another spicy, fun, exciting episode with The Heart of Dating for season seven. This show is part of the Converge Podcast Network. 